What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Get ready to geek out on how the bearing size, ratchets, pawls, and overall hub designs and spoke interfaces all impact your hub's durability and overall wheel's performance. My guest today is Jacob McGay, VP of Industry 9, and with four generations of hubs to talk about, this is an in-depth look at what they've learned about torque, longevity, materials, and so much more. We also chat about the business side of things, their insane growth even before the pandemic, and the current supply chain situation, and how they're still growing more than 50% annually. Jacob's a great guest, offering up all the details on their design and business. He's also a shredder, routinely gapping way bigger jumps and crushing huge climbs way faster than me every time we ride together. So without further ado, please welcome Jacob McGee. Hey, Jacob, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing, Tyler? Okay, <laughs> good, good. Thanks for coming on. Um, so I, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about, and um, there's a lot of story to tell around Industry 9. So maybe let's just kind of start at the beginning of how Industry 9 got going. You guys, before you were Industry 9, you were a company that was producing parts for Rock Shocks and Cane Creek. What was that all about? Yeah, so uh, Industry 9 uh, actually kind of sprung out of... Uh, parent company, Trinamics, which is a uh, manufacturing facility that uh, Harvey Spiegel started uh, over 50 years ago. And uh, his son, Clint, uh, got involved in the business uh, very early on, uh, was actually helping set up machines when he was in a teenager and uh, and uh, was actually helping manage the business uh, by the time he was in his late teens and early 20s. And uh, before Industry 9, uh, Trinamics actually got involved in the bike industry in the early 90s um, as they were doing contract manufacturing for uh, for Rock Shocks. Uh, Rock Shocks at that point was uh, co-owned by Paul Turner, as well as uh, Diacomp USA also had some ownership in Rock Shocks. And so they were manufacturing uh, some of the components for the original uh, MAG-20 series and I believe MAG-21 uh, series Rock Shocks suspension forks um, that helped launch, launch the brand. After Diacomp and Paul Turner kind of parted ways in terms of the ownership. Paul Turner took took over ownership of Rock Shocks, and he moved the company production initially to uh, California, and then I think eventually over to uh, to Asia. And so uh, that that business uh, dried up for for Trinamics, but it goes back uh, back quite a ways as far as the bike industry involvement for uh, this manufacturing uh, facility. And then uh, later in the in the late nineties, Clint Spiegel uh, got asked by some contacts he had at, uh, at Cane Creek, which actually was uh, sprung out of Diacomp USA. Uh, but Cane Creek was interested in developing a clutch hub. Um, so they were looking for an instant engagement hub. Um, and uh, there were several companies at that point that were that were investigating that style of design. I think Shimano at the same time had their, their clutch hub they developed. And Clint spent a, a decent amount of resources and time working on this on the clutch hub. Uh, which unfortunately never made it to market. There were a lot of issues uh, inherent with clutch hub design. Well, uh, real quick, yeah. explain clutch hub. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the the clutch hubs basically use or use a uh, essentially rollers within the clutch, and then they uh, they have a, a ramp system. So essentially, as you're when you're coasting, the the uh, rollers slide down the backs of the the uh, these ramps, um, and and allow the wheel to uh, uh, to coast freely without making any noise. Uh, that was one of the uh, and also without uh, without drag, uh, which is one of the advantages of the clutch, of a clutch hub system. As you start to pedal forward, essentially those rollers um, um, it's, you know, kind of 
hopefully you can picture this. The rollers essentially roll up these ramps and wedge in between the ramp and the uh, the in the interior of the hub shell and allow the, the hub to transfer torque. Um, now, the issue with traditional clutch hubs that were uh, being being developed at the time is is as those rollers uh, go up the ramp, they essentially start to exert you know they exert, exert a lot of pressure on the hub shell and, and you know, create an expansive expansive force. Um, and so the, the hub shells had to be rein, reinforced with a lot of material. In fact, the, the Can Creek hub design that was being worked on at the time, uh, you know, they ended up using some carbon fiber to wrap the hub shell to reduce it, uh, the, you know, to, to keep the, the shell strong enough. Uh, and then the, the additional problem is with repeated torque applications. Eventually, these, uh, the, the rollers could wedge further and further up these ramps and then in some cases would actually drop over into the next, essentially onto the next ramp, which would cause a failure of the hub to cause everything to lock up. Due to the uh, uh, some of the, the issues with that hub, it actually never made it to market and the, and the project was scrapped. So that's kind of a you know, initial foray into the bike uh, bike world uh, between the RockShox project and the Can Creek project. At that point, uh, um, Clint wasn't uh, particularly involved in cycling on a personal level. And he did do a little bit of riding with the the Can Creek crew and and got involved in the sport uh, at a basic level at that point. But he uh, several years later uh, got really got into uh, mountain biking and uh, the idea of developing an interesting engagement hub that didn't have the issues of the clutch hub came to mind as he was riding. He was frustrated with the level of engagement or lack thereof on most of the products in the market, and so he started kind of thinking about what sort of concepts and designs might work to allow for an instant engagement hub that didn't have the shortcomings that a clutch hub the design he worked on previously had had. That impetus was actually what, what launched the original industry iron hub designs, which used a, a six pole system uh, that was phased with three poles that would, would alternately engage with the, uh, with a 62 drive ring, which gave the 120 points of engagement that uh, kind of helped launch the brand uh, that three degree engagement that kind of set the standard for a, a lightweight, uh, high engagement design that uh, didn't have too much drag or, or other shortcomings. Yeah. And, and the, the sound of it certainly put you guys on the map. And I think became for a while, the trademark, you know, Chris King had their buzz and you guys, I don't even, not really a whine, but industry nine hubs were definitely loud and they definitely had a unique sound on the trail. Like you knew the second somebody was coming up behind you with your hubs. Absolutely, that's definitely been a uh, been a trademark for the brand for quite a while, and uh, and that's you know it's one of the inherent aspects of having a, a uh, either a Paul or ratchet driven design that that has a really high engagement uh, for each one of those uh, engagement points or or clicks. You know, the, the more more the higher engagement is, and the more clicks you have for rotation of the wheel, um, it is going to have that uh, that higher frequency noise that are that's kind of indicative of a, of a high engagement hub. Right. So to me, just adding more teeth, ratchet teeth, or even more paws seems like a really simple solution to improve engagement. But there weren't a lot of high, really high, you know, quick engaging hubs at the moment. Hence, you know, Clint's desire to produce something like what was why not? Like, how is this an idea that hadn't been fully executed already? I think the uh, the big thing is the, the the devil's in the details. It's it's uh it's certainly on paper, it's, you know, the simple solution is you add more teeth to uh, produce higher engagement. And I think the two elements that really allowed uh, the Industry 9 hub to leapfrog other hubs on the market was, uh, first of all, going to the phased engagement. Um, 
you know, that it, at the point that Industry 9 started developing the hubs, there were no other hubs on the market that were using a, a phased engagement system. Um, so that the phased engagement, just on right off the bat with using the six poles and, and the phasing, allowed you to double your engagement points. But the, uh, the second aspect of that had to do with torque transfer. So traditional, most, uh, most hubs on the market uh, up to the point that uh, Industry 9 launched its first products were, were typically had drive rings that were, uh, that were broached and they had single tooth uh, poles. Um, so with that, in order to transfer torque, you needed a lot of surface area because the drive ring itself wasn't strong enough to take really high loads with small teeth. Um, and you also had one contact point for two tooth. So the, so you just had, didn't have a lot of, you needed to have a lot of surface area to transfer the torque. Uh, the big advantage of the industry nine brought to the table because of the manufacturing capabilities that were already available, uh, in the Turnamics facility, what industry nine was able to do and what Clint was able to do is utilize a, a wire EDM process to produce the drive rings. So the benefit of a wire EDM process is you actually take a, a heat treated blank that's basically been machined with the threads on it uh, that's used for the drive ring and then it's already been brought up to its maximum hardness and then you use a uh, an EDM process which is electrical discharge machining which you essentially instead of cutting out the tooth profile on the on the drive ring it essentially electrically erodes the uh, the the profile out so the cutting's done by an electrical cut um, rather than mechanical cut and the, the big advantage that allows you uh, two two big advantages that allows is number one, you get to cut the material in its hardest state. And essentially, once a product is heat treated like that, like the drive ring is heat treated, you have a decarb layer on the top, which is more brittle uh, than the rest of the material. So what the electrical discharge ma- machine allows you to do is essentially cut down into the meat of the material, get rid of that decarb layer. And so you're, you're essentially the teeth are going to be maximum strength they can be for a given amount of material. Uh, the other benefit is is because the product's already been heat treated in a in a larger state. Basically, it's got more additional material on it when it's heat treated. It's uh it it doesn't isn't affected by warping um, as you would normally have in a thin light drive ring that was heat treated after it had already been machined. So the two big benefits are first of all you can have a large uh, but still lightweight drive ring, and number two you have the maximum amount amount of strength you can have for each one of those teeth so you can get away with much smaller teeth than you would with a broach drive ring uh the other benefit right on yeah then and then the, the other benefit is the poles are basically manufactured in the same same method um so the poles th- themselves are also edm cut after the bar of the poles are cut out of is is has been heat treated so the poles maximize their strength and on top of that the original torch uh, i'm sorry the original uh, industry nine hubs had three teeth per pole uh, versus the single tooth that most other brands had, uh, which allowed for additional surface area and additional torque carrying capacity. Right. So basically, and I want to clarify a few terms, but let's, let's start with that two teeth per pole. So each pole had three little teeth on it, meaning each pole was making three points of contact and you had three engaging at a time. So you had like nine points of contact locking into that toothed ring and just really creating a lot of surface area so you couldn't get slippage or anything like that right exactly so re- essentially eliminated the risk of, of slipping or failure or, or having the having the teeth shear cool um so a couple terms you mentioned that, that you know having toured your factory i want to see if i can answer them and you correct me if i get this wrong but so the broaching process is essentially just punching a die through a piece of metal so like a broached ring would basically have almost like die cut lock ring so you i guess you know there's you're losing some of the benefits of that precision edm cutting and then the um 
the phased pauls, just for people who don't know. So if you have six pauls and they're phased in sets of three, it means that of those six, three are engaging at any given time. The others are offset by like basically half of a, a ratchet length so that you get like twice as many engagements as you would with, you know, so 60 teeth, you're getting 120 engagement points because three are engaging a half step off of the other three, right? Yeah, that is, that's exactly right. And that's the way that the uh, traditional system worked. Um, and then that, that basic format was carried forward toward the, to the uh, torch system as well. Um, the torch system, and you know, wh- when we went through the testing process, actually realized as we were developing the torch system that we were a- able to reduce the tooth count uh, or on the paws themselves to two teeth per paw, um, as we found out that that was actually still plenty enough to surface area to, to transfer torque. Uh, but the basic concepts essentially carried over to torch. So uh, as we did, as with the original design, the torch design had a uh, 60 tooth drive ring, six paws, and and uh, phased engagement. So at any given point, three teeth were and three paws were engaged at once, and the other three were a half step out. Cool. Okay, so let's give people a sense of the development cycle. So you had the first hubs, and then those became, you know, you upgraded to Torch. Torch upgraded to Hydra, and then from Hydra, you you added, like, a step that was somewhere a little bit below where Torch was called 1-1. What did you learn from the originals that you applied to Torch, and then from Torch to Hydra, and then... How did you end up taking the technologies you have and making a more affordable hub that still, you know, for all intents and purposes, feels like a high quality, top level industry nine hub? Yeah. So the uh, from the first generation to the hubs to the torch hubs, the big goals we had with that that particular project were to uh, um, reduce the overall weight of our rear hubs, makes the hubs a little bit simpler to uh, work on and also effectively more reliable in the field. Um, and also to reduce uh, the coasting drag a little bit over uh, over the original design, which uh, could have a tendency to to, to uh, with the original system to have a little extra uh, chain push on it. Um, if you're familiar with that, with just you know at high speeds, you you know there was enough drag in the free hub system to uh, essentially create a you know could could create create a little bit of slack in the chain in certain scenarios. Is that because of the three teeth per Paul going down to two teeth? Like what fixed that? How did you reduce um, that, was, that drag? That was one factor. The other factor was that our original system used a, uh, a large outboard bearing on the free hub uh, that actually the, the hub shell, the bearing was in between the free hub and the hub shell. And so that, that large bearing had a lot of surface area on the seals. So actually uh, the bearing itself created more of that drag than the Paul system. So with, when we moved to Torch, we actually uh, moved the hub shell bearing for the drive side to a more traditional location, so that the uh, the bearing for uh, which is carried over to the same format we use in in Hydra and One One, the uh, bearing for the drive side hub shell uh, side of the hub shell is is basically positioned in between the hub shell and the axle, rather than in, in between the hub shell and the outside of the free hub. That's interesting because I would think like a larger diameter, you know, oversized bearing would actually, yeah, I didn't think about the drag, but you would think, and maybe this is why you did it, is it would have like lower rolling resistance between the balls, but also mainly just stiffer, right? Like bigger, stronger, everything. The, uh, um, with the original design, you don't, uh, switching to our new design, there wasn't really a, a big compromise in stiffness. And that primarily had to do with the fact that we were able to, uh, actually, um, go to uh to a different format with the axle itself we actually increased the axle diameter uh slightly and in terms of the the overall layout with the hub we moved the bearings out as far as possible 
um, on the drive side hub shell. So between the two two hubs on paper, you might have a you know, in theory a small difference in the in the overall hub potential hub stiffness. But we didn't really find a, a big difference that was noticeable in terms of the the actual wheel wheel performance. And uh, going back to the original uh, goals for the project, what we did did note is just between the drag factor of having going to a much smaller bearing, but also having the bearing unaffected by coasting, you were able to reduce the the overall drag of the system dramatically. But the other factor is is in terms of weight, we were able to take almost 100 grams of weight out of the rear hub uh, by going to a smaller format for the bearings. Um, so that was a big big goal for the project as well. We were really trying to uh, develop a hub that was going to be more competitive with the, you know, some of the lighter weight hubs on the market that used uh, you know, either a, a ratchet system or a poly driven system and used smaller diameter drive rings and smaller diameter bearings. So overall, we felt like it was a net net benefit in the design as it was minimal compromise uh, compromises in terms of stiffness, et cetera, but a huge benefit in terms of reduced drag and reduced weight. Cool. Okay. And then so going from torch to hydro, what was what changed and what did you learn from that step? With the hydro design, uh, really, uh, um, that's, you know, the brainchild of, of, of Clint. Um, you know, he's, he's definitely got one of those, uh, he's got an ability to see things, you know, well outside of the, uh, the box when it comes to conceptualizing designs. And as he was, as we were reviewing opportunities to um, increase the engagement on the, the hubs, um, but also make sure that we could uh, maintain a reliability of the system and address some limited issues we would see with the uh, with the torch system in, in rare instances. The three things we were looking at was, uh, you know, first of all, trying to increase the reliability of the system. And uh, what we noted with the torch system is is even though this this system is designed with uh, with a phase pawl arrangement, uh, where you have uh, you know the target is to have three pawls engaged at any given point, and the other three half step out. Uh, due to flexes in the system and uh, uh, you know, flex in the system and and just the nature of being on a bike that's seeing high loads and on a mountain bike where you're constantly making small ratchet maneuvers, et cetera, and engaging and then releasing pressure on the pawl system. Occasionally, you get a single pawl engagement where essentially one pawl drops into the 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 uh, drive ring, um, but the other two pawls that are targeted to engage at the same time aren't able to drop into the drive ring at the same time due to due to flex in the system right as you're starting to engage. And that can create some both a cantilever load that affects the bearings, but also could speed up the, the wear on the pawl pocket. So essentially the the the, uh, the socket that the pawl itself uh, rests in uh, it created additional loads in that area and wouldn't uh, certainly not something that would cause an immediate failure. But over time, that cycle could could accelerate the wear on a free hub uh, in a hub hub design. So Essentially, as, as Clint was looking at that particular that issue, and, and on, in concert, uh, real, you know, as we were looking at possible op- opportunities for higher engagement, uh, recognizing that you know, the more with a normal system, the more engagement points you have, the the higher odds are that you're going to occasionally get a single pawl engagement with a traditional phase, uh, either a traditional system or a phase pawl system. Um, he kind of all those factors kind of led him to come up with the idea of the Hydra system, which is essentially a continuously phased system. So the, the hydro system, we actually were able to uh, increase the drive ring, the tooth count uh, from 60 to 115 teeth with with, with, a, with a traditional system would essentially mean that if you ever got just a single paw engagement and one paw was taking all the load, um, you would have a, a real risk of like of damaging the drive ring or, or uh, you know, just not being able to carry the loads. But the, 
the uh, the cool thing about the hydro system is because it's continuously phased and the tooth count is so high, essentially as you, uh, as the system works, it guarantees you'll never have a single pawl taking load because it, essentially as one pawl engages, then the trailing uh, second and third pawls, as the system just has a, a, a minute amount of flex, we're talking about basically once once one pawl engages, the next pawl in line essentially has two sheets of paper distance between it and the drive ring tooth. A second and third pawl will start to take that load. And so it guarantees uh, uh, you'll never have a single pawl taking the load, but also allows for a system that for the initial engagement, you go from a three-degree uh, engagement, as we had on the on the uh, first system, to uh, essentially a, a half-degree engagement. So it's 690 points of engagement versus 120, um, which equates to uh, basically 0.52 uh, degrees. Which is essentially instant engagement. Exactly. That's I mean, crazy. For, for all intents and purposes, it, it is an instant engagement system because reality is any type of, uh, you know, clutch system out there, um, as you, even though the initial engagement, you know, could theoretically be instant as that clutch system, essentially load is transferred to it, it actually requires flex in the system to start to engage. So um, any of the clutch systems out there, the, the actual effective power transfer is going to uh, accommodate a certain amount of movement in the system before it fully transfers power, if that makes sense. Yeah. So how many poles are on the hydras then? So it's not just one single one theoretically engaged at a time, right? So the hydra system uses uh, six poles again, but the uh, you know, the big difference is instead of them being being phased, uh, to essentially use the math of the uh, between drive ring and poles. So the poles are all, whereas on the on the torch system we had uh, two sets of three poles, which were actually clocked within the free hub body to allow for that engagement. Uh, essentially, the hydro system has six poles that are all equally spaced around the uh, the free hub, and it relies on the the, the tooth count on the drive ring to um, and basically the the math between 115 poles and the or 115 teeth and the six poles to have continuous engagement. So essentially, all if you would imagine the space between uh, from one tooth to the next, essentially you have uh, out of those 115 teeth, you have six different engagement points or each of those six poles will would engage at a different point over the trans uh, over the movement of that one tooth um, as it rotates essentially for every you know for every time a tooth moves forward you know from one one tooth to the next you have six engagement points for the poles very cool i think somewhere we've got some video of that maybe on our social but i know you and i have discussed that flex and causing like one single engagement point before and i have some photos that illustrate that so i'll in the show notes for this, I'll be sure to link to that article because I think visuals will definitely help people get a better grasp of that. It certainly helped me. Okay, so you have this insanely high-end, high-engagement hub called Hydra now. How did you, uh, I hate to say dumb that down, but you know what I mean, bring that down to a way more affordable price point with the 1-1 one, one hubs? Yeah, so with the the 1-1 one, one hubs, uh, we kind of, uh, it really, it kind of springs out of what we learned from the, the torch hub uh, 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 hubs in terms of the how they function in the field. So the, essentially with the one one hub, we, in order to hit our price points, we did realize that we were going to need to uh, um, go from an EDM um, drivering um, and EDM poles to more cost effective uh, uh, ways to manufacture the drivering and poles. Um, and so we, we did actually uh, um, choose to go with a broached drivering, and we actually are using an extrusion to manufacture the poles. Uh, but we were able to do so and still maintain a very high level engagement, you know, higher than actually most of the uh, uh, other high end hubs on the market. 
um, by incorporating a couple of factors. Uh, first of all, we we went to a, uh, a significantly larger um, drive ring than most hubs are using, and even larger than we've been using on the Torch Series drive rings, uh, for instance. So that the larger your drive ring is, essentially, uh, the more torque carrying uh, capacity it has for a given amount, given tooth profile height. Um, just from a basic um, cantilever standpoint, you know, the bigger your drive ring is, the more mechanical advantage it essentially has over your uh, over your free hub. And so we the one one Hubs use a 45 tooth drive ring, uh, so it's not quite as high as the uh, uh, high tooth count as the Torch product is. But by going larger and going to 45 teeth, we were able to increase the tooth, tooth each individual tooth on the drive ring size. Um, so we're able to get plenty of torque carrying capacity out of the drive ring. The additional step that we made to address um, again issues we'd seen in those high torque applications for mountain bike use on Torch is we went to a significantly larger pawl pocket size. And so essentially the the uh, radius on the pawl pocket is is much larger than torch. So even if you do occasionally uh, get a single pawl engagement with the 1-1 hubs, uh, because the pawl pocket size in the, in the low transfer area is so much higher, you're, much, you're not going to have the potential for, for overtime deformation in the pawl pocket that, you, that, you, that we saw on some of our, our torch hubs after long periods of use. All right, Don. All right, so let's. Uh, well, and, and we should just say real quick that the um, the torch hubs are still in use on the road side of things. Is there any need for going to a higher engagement system on road? I feel like mountain bike, you want that little fine movements on the pedals when you're kind of like picking your way through a really technical section and doing these little micro pedals to get through a rock garden or something without bringing the pedal all the way down where it could clip. But on the road, it's really just you're mainly just kind of spinning constantly, like. Are you guys working on any higher engagement or do you see a need for that for the road? Yeah, on the road side of things, we definitely, you know, we have had some requests for higher engagement uh, hubs from time to time. For most for most riders out there, the torch system um, with a six degree engagement, which is, uh, again, uh, faster than, you know, much faster than most hubs on the market is, is plenty. But we do occasionally get some requests and it's certainly something we have considered for, for future project uh, products. You know, the, the overall uh, the demands on a, on a road hub are very different than a mountain bike. Uh, the primary factors uh, are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you, you're not typically on really steep, slow speed technical sections where you're having to ratchet over rocks and roots, et cetera. But the other factor is gearing. You know, the average uh, road bike has uh, even going to, you know, to uh, you know, modern gravel bikes, it's pretty rare to find a, a, a road or gravel bike with less than one to one gearing. So, for instance, you know, a, uh, a 40, 38 or 40 tooth, uh, uh, front chain ring on a, on a gravel bike with a, you know, a, a 42 tooth cog. Um, but we have seen things, you know, shifting over where occasionally you do have people running, uh, for instance, an AXS system with a 1052 cog set on a, uh, on a 38 or 40 tooth drive ring. So we are seeing gear ranges getting a little bit lower, but again, it's not quite the same torque load that you would normally see on a, on a mountain bike, which um, you know, you commonly got riders running as low as 28 or 26 tooth chain rings with a 52 tooth cog where you have really high torque loads on the system um, that require a different solution to manage stress, um, you know, which is what kind of generated our, our hydro product, for instance. All right. So you mentioned six degrees with the road torch and I think the mountain bike was three degrees, right? So did you remove a set of the phased balls for road just to reduce drag or something or yes that's that's exactly what what the road design employs so the road design is is a three pawl system 
um, with the use of the same poles and the same drive ring that the, the Torch Mountain Bike product used. Um, but we employ the three pole system in order to reduce drag and also in road applications. Um, you know, one of the requests we had from, uh, you know, from road riders at, at the time we were developing that was, you know, also looking for a slightly quieter hub. Um, so yeah, you know, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, on the mountain bike, you you know, we've got trail noise and the speeds are generally lower, et cetera. So, um, you know, we did, did find that on the, on the road where things are quieter and you've got less, you know, less feedback in your speed, average speeds are higher, um, that the, uh, uh, we were looking for, for a slightly quieter and lower drag system versus the mountain bike. Right on. Cool. Okay. So let's step back in time for a minute, back to the beginning, because you guys decided to start building hubs, which, you know, this is a time when there's still, I think a lot of people were really excited about doing custom, you know, fully custom built wheels. Now there's just so many great options for fully built wheels, you know, yourselves included, but you had to be looking at this going like, okay, we're going to go up against Chris King which has a huge following and makes some really great hubs. And we're going to be going against DT Swiss, which even then had a huge share of the OEM market. Like as if that weren't hard enough, you decided to also machine your own spokes out of aluminum and do some other really interesting things. Like what was like, why add so many obstacles to entering the category? Yeah, I think that what it really came down to is that, uh, um, you know, Clint, always looking for opportunities to improve uh improve product and uh and again coming i think in, in particular because he comes from the clint comes from the machining world where you're he's making products for all types of different companies and lots of different applications um so he's when he comes to uh looks at bike products it's not purely looking at it from a you know from a bike industry industry perspective and so when he was looking at the overall wheel system after developing the hub you know, from, from his perspective, you know, there were still some significant limitations that were, um, that were present on traditional steel spoke built wheels. And, uh, in the particular issue that, that, uh, um, he was interested in addressing was the normal relationship between the hub and the rim that, re- that requires a steel spoke and has a, uh, has a couple of areas of both flex and inherent weakness, um, that, over time, reduce you know in the short term reduce the product performance, but over time can also uh, reduce reliability in the long term. And uh, the particular areas that he was focused on was first of all the interface with the, the spoke and the hub. Uh, with traditional steel spoke wheels using either a J bend style flange or even spokes that use a straight pull flange, essentially the uh, um, the, the spoke as it enters the hub. Um, because it's in the case of a J-bend spoke, it's a ball in a socket. In the case of a steel, even a steel straight pull spoke, you essentially still have some some uh, a pivot point or some wiggle room. There's not a direct firm interface with the uh, the hub. It allows for more flex at the hub in where the spoke is mounted into the, into the uh, the hub, and essentially allows for a pivot point where it reduces the overall uh, stiffness or in in precision that a wheel offers. So that so by employing a straight pull spoke, which for those of you who who are uh, familiar with it, uh, you probably probably seen the way our system works. But uh, for those of you who are not, essentially we have our spokes are one piece and they thread directly into the hub shell. They and while they true like a normal uh, uh, nipple and spoke or would with a, a spoke wrench at the rim, they, it's a one piece system. And so the essentially the whole spoke turns and threads its way into the uh, into the hub. So benefit one is that because the spoke is threaded directly into the hub, it's a rigid mounting point 
And between the wider cross-section of the aluminum and the fact that the spoke is threaded directly into the hub, it allows for less lateral flex at the hub interface than a traditional steel spoke. Uh, but the biggest benefit from a reliability standpoint is that on all traditional steel spoke wheels, essentially the the threads uh, tend to be the weakest area of the spoke, and because the uh, threads are rolled into a uh, uh, rolled into the the spoke at a diameter that's already it's kind of pre-prescribed by how the the budding on the spoke or uh, has been been performed. Essentially, the the root diameter of the threads is going to be the thinnest section of the uh, of the whole spoke. Um, or the surrounding material, if it's a, a butted spoke, and it creates a uh, essentially it cr- creates a weak point because you, first of all you've got a V shape, which creates a stress riser, and you've got a smaller diameter of material at the base of those threads. And what you'll see over time is that is that most steel spoke wheels uh, will eventually fail at the uh, uh, typically at the first thread on the spoke as it fatigue cycles over over you know you know it could be. It typically takes a really long time for it to happen, but as the fatigue cycles over multiple uh, hours and hours and or, or years of use, eventually the, the spokes will typically fail at that first thread. And whereas on our aluminum spokes, because it's a machine spoke, essentially the threaded area of the spoke is a, is uh, made to be a larger diameter than the rest of the spoke. And so the in and whereas the threads are actually rolled in as well on our spokes um, with a rolling die. They're a lot, much larger diameter area than they are in a traditional seal spoke and it eliminates that stress riser. And, uh, you know, we basically never see, uh, what, what we, we, you could consider to be a fatigue related failure at the threads on our spokes. Right. And are they lighter, the alloy spokes that you machine than a typical steel spoke? For a, for a given amount of, uh, uh stiffness. So we, we could actually, depending on our, our first generation product, this kind of goes back a while. We actually, you know, we were making some super, super light spokes. That were lighter than you know the, than any of the steel spokes on the market, but uh, you know we decided we had a conscious decision with our torch series spokes that you know while we can make them lighter than than uh, steel, we essentially chose a uh, material diameter that would kind of balance long term durability because that's one of the things our wheels are known for is being really bomb proof over time with weight. So they're lighter than than a traditional you know w- you know 1.8 to 2.0 steel spokes and anything lighter than that but they're going to be you know slightly heavier than the, the thinnest uh 2.0 to 1.5 uh, butted spokes or or you know some of the some of the uh super light bladed spokes out there but you know we're talking about a very small difference and and overall the uh we felt like it was worthwhile to, to focus on the overall durability of the product rather than trying to go after the absolute lightest weight yeah and, and you guys still make some pretty light wheels i mean you're kind of splitting hairs at some point so I want to kind of use the spoke manufacturing as a nice segue into production capacity and what's going on in the industry right now. But I remember when I first toured I-9 was before you even worked there. This was going back a good ways. One of the bottlenecks was having to machine your own spokes because the machines, you know, making them could only move so fast and you only had so many machines. So that that my recollection is that was one of the limiting factors to your growth was how many spokes you could actually produce. And I know with like your road wheels, you're using a more traditional spoke, but you guys have been blowing up. And, you know, I I think being US made, especially right now with so many production issues and delays going on because of COVID-19, you're in an advantageous spot of being able to make your own stuff. But at the same time, you have limitations on how much you can make. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the, we certainly are in a 
beneficial position in terms of our uh, you know potential for growth. Uh, you know, manufacturing our own our own products, but the um, and we have uh, we have definitely been working really hard to respond to this latest uh, um, you know the latest uh, pandemic related bike industry surge that uh, of course everyone is is seeing across the board. So the the benefit is that you know we've we've added over two million dollars in new uh, CNC equipment. And we've hired between both sides of the business. We've hired around twenty employees since the uh, just over the last few months. Um, so we've made some very significant investments in increasing manufacturing capacity. But um, of course, you know, versus pre-pandemic when you could just place you know for companies who are working out of Asia and you could place a bigger PO to your you know to, you know to your supplier. You know, it, it still takes some significant time to uh, to ramp up, and of course, the other challenge is trying to trying to walk the the line between, you know, making sure that at the end of this, you know, if if this bike boom slows down, and and you know, a year and a half from now, you know, making sure that we don't overinvest because we want to make sure that you know our 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 goal is, of course, to take care of our customers and uh, and grow our company. But you know, the last thing we want to do is basically is is try to grow too too quickly. And be in a position where, we, where over the long term, we might have to, uh, you know, lay off staff or, or downsize our production. It's a two-edged door. We can, we certainly have our, our, uh, have our own fate in our hands in terms of being able to make those investments and to grow our business at the same time. But those are also, you know, significant capital investments and in, in investing in our employees. Um, that you know, we want to make sure that we're making investments that are smart for the long term. Um, over the last six months, or actually almost eight months. We've been able to increase our output capacity by uh, by 50%, which is phenomenal. Of course, the challenge is during that exact same period of time, we've seen over 100% growth in incoming sales. So, if you, as you do the math, what we're seeing is just a lead times. Unfortunately, have kind of continued to to uh, to move up. Um, so, it's a, it's a it's certainly a challenging climate to function in when you're all hands on deck and and working really hard to increase our output, but at the same time, it's just extraordinary growth in demand that we've seen and. Um, and, and for us, it's kind of the, the, uh, the growth on growth that we, you know, even pre pandemic, we had been growing, uh, typically between 25 and 35% a year and then throw the, uh, throw, throw the bike boom on top of that. And it's just, you know, really, really difficult to manage, um, the, the, uh, the huge in- increase in sales we've seen or in, in, in orders. So where, uh, I got a bunch of questions. I, w- I don't want to forget to ask you where that growth is coming from, you know, pre-pandemic growth, because that's, that's still impressive growth. But, um, before we touch on that, let's, there's gotta be some supply co- constraints with you because you guys don't make your own rims and I don't think you're making bearings. So those are coming from somewhere. Is that, how is that working out for you? Um, you know, so far we've been able to manage that pretty well. Um, you know, the, uh, our, primary uh, alloy rim manufacturer is, is uh, located in Taiwan um, and they've done a great job of uh, making some significant investments and, and increasing production. And, um, you know, I, you know, we certainly have seen our lead times increase, but I, that's been more, uh, uh, more a factor, I, I would say of our increased uh, ordering um, than it has been that they've, you know, they've had necessarily production, you know, production limit limitations from other other sources, but I'm sure we, you'd have to get that exact information from them. Um, but uh, and on the carbon rim front, uh, our two carbon suppliers, which are uh, we have our premium mountain bike rims, are, are manufactured by uh, We Are One in Canada. They've made some huge investments in manufacturing, and they've been done a great job keeping us in stock of uh, of, of that product. And then Reynolds, are, uh, who manufactures, uh, um, you know 
additional carbon models, uh, both our road models and, and some of our other uh, steel spoke mountain bike pro- uh, products. Uh, they've also been able to, uh, uh, you know, scale and, and, uh, been, we haven't seen any huge increases in deliveries on their end. As, as far as more, you know, cute challenges, uh, on the bearing side of things, we've definitely, again, due to our growth, I would say as much as the, uh, in, in concert with production pressure, you know, we have seen, uh, you know, seen some deliveries that were normally, um, Enduro, our bearing supplier would ship us product. Uh, uh they, they actually stock product for us in, in their facility in California, we've had some direct sh- shipments from their manufacturing facility just to kind of uh, make sure we stay on top of product. And we've also, uh, one of the most recent challenges we're facing is we are seeing um, across the board increases, uh, increased lead times, but also increased costs for al- al- aluminum raw materials, whether that's um, some of the forging which we use for uh, uh, 1-1 yeah, you know, free hubs, for instance. Um, just recently, you know, we're hearing some delays on that, and uh, or just raw material from our U.S. aluminum suppliers that we use on a lot of our our products. We're seeing some increased prices and uh, and potential for for reduced capacity. Mm, yeah, you know, like this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's going to affect everyone and <laughs> everyone everywhere for every reason. Is that it seems like right now uh, material prices in almost every category, plastics and stuff because of petroleum, wood, you know, lumber, and then of course, metal and stuff like, it seems like everything is going to get more expensive real soon. Do you anticipate a price jump on your wheels? Like should people put their orders in right now? Well, you know, we, we did actually, uh, implement a small, uh, price increase, um, in, uh, the end of, uh, or middle, middle of February on our products across the board. And, you know, that was to account for uh, not only the increased material costs we're seeing, we, you know, we, there's, there's several, uh, lateral challenges, uh, uh for instance, on aluminum, uh, rims or product from Taiwan in general, the, uh, NTT, NTD to, to, to uh, dollar ratio is, uh, is kind of slipped. And so, uh, we've had it seen a slight increase in our rim costs. But on top of that, as has been widely publicized, shipping costs have just, uh, gone up astronomically for us to get a 40 foot container from, uh, from Taiwan to uh, the U.S. has literally doubled in price, or actually more than doubled in price over the last eight months, and and uh, now you're basically having to pay, you know, essentially have to pay a a, a extra sum just to guarantee you can even get space on a ship. Um, so it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a big challenge, and uh, and we did have to you know consider that in the big picture and and, and increase our prices slightly. Um, but you know, our, our, our goal is to try to ma- maintain as competitive as we can for a, you know, for a U.S. made product that is expensive to make. Um, so we haven't really increased prices substantially. Yeah. This is going to totally timestamp this conversation, but that boat that's stuck in the Suez Canal right now is that, are you looking at that and they're like, Oh crap, there's our rims stuck. <laughs> that actually, uh, generally affects a product going from Asia to Europe. Um, so all of our product is, uh, you know, none of our product is, it, it ships through that route you know, is we've grown our European warehouse, which has been a new investment. Um, in the long term, we intend to start ocean shipping product from directly from, uh, from Asia to uh, Europe. And that would certainly be affected once that's the, uh, you know, if that was the case. Um, but as of right now, uh, uh, our product isn't, isn't getting routed through that direct avenue. Um, I'm not sure if there's going to be a knock-on effect of just overall shipping slowdown. I'm guessing that, that probably when all this, even as things clear out, there's going to be some port congestion and, and ongoing delays that even though our product's not routed through the Suez Canal, I would imagine it's going to have to have some sort of a knock-on effect in the long term on, on uh, supply, supply lines when the shipping routes are already just so jam-packed. 
and so competitive. I'm sure, man. Um, so on the one, one hubs, it's, you know, you have something that's more affordable and seems to me like a good candidate for OEM spec, but from a business standpoint, when you, when you first started and as the, the company has evolved, clearly there's a whole different pricing structure that you have to have in place for OEM customers because, you know, they need to add their margins to their bikes and everything else. Like, are you chasing OEM customers and placements on stock bikes or is that just not even part of the business model? Yeah, that's uh, certainly part of our, our business model. And, um, it's, it's, you know, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's kind of a balancing act of, you know, with there's, there's multiple reasons, of course, to, uh, um, to partner with o- OEM, um, relationships and, and with bike and wheel manufacturers. Um, but the, you know, the, from a uh, brand standpoint, it's all, you know, it's, it's obviously great for us to have our, our product on premium brands like Ibis or Santa Cruz or Pivot, et cetera. Um, and we've had long-term partners. Um, you know, I think Noli was one of our earliest uh, OEM customers for wheels uh, back before I even started here. So it's, it's, it's uh, certainly, it's, it's it, you know, I think it's a great position for our product to be um, prominently displayed on, on, uh, on those bike brands and, and wheel brands, et cetera. And, uh, and also the, the other benefit is that the OEM, you know, OEM customers, you know, the volume that they, they provide us in terms of manufacturing product, you know, production, et cetera, uh, really allows us to kind of make those, you know, significant long-term investments in infrastructure and machining, um, with a stable, uh, stable customer base that, that kind of allow us to grow our, 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 our brand and our, you know, in our manufacturing for the long term. The aftermarket is, always going to be core of our brand. You know, we, we started the company as a, is a small custom wheel builder. We, you know, we've got our, uh, it hasn't come up in the conversation yet, but uh, you know, we, we do it, do custom in a way that no other wheel company does with 11 different colors and the abilities to do, to create custom spoke patterns, et cetera, on our wheels. And that's always going to be a core of who industry nine is. And, uh, um, but the aftermarket is going to be, you know, is always a little bit more volatile and the volumes are lower. And so we, we're always trying to balance the, um, you know, the, the goal of, of producing competitive, compelling aftermarket product. It's exciting for, for, for end customers and, you know, they get to dial in their exact wheel set, but also trying to make sure we have the foundational backbone in terms of some, some larger customers that are with higher volumes that allow us to, uh, to kind of make the long-term investments in the company, knowing that we're going to have a stable customer base. Right. Cool. Yeah. Uh, about your color thing. If anybody wants to waste some time or you know, s- screw off at work a little bit, just go to industry9.com and find the color th- design my wheels. It's right there at the top and you can spend some time like literally picking the individual spoke color for every spoke on the wheel. And you know, just, it's just fun. It's good distraction. If, even if you're not planning on ordering a set of wheels right away. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've, I've been here for uh, almost 11 <laughs> years now, and I still get excited every time I build a new set of custom wheels for my personal bike. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you, right? That's part of the fun of it. Um, okay, so let, let's wrap up with the growth question, circle back to that, because pre-pandemic, like 25 to 30% growth per year makes me wonder two things. Like, where is that growth coming from? Well, I guess it's two two sides of that, right? Like, are you just stealing customers from other wheel brands, or is the market really growing that fast? Um, we definitely have been growing faster than the uh, the bike industry as a whole. So, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that I it wouldn't characterize it as stealing uh, customers from other wheel brands as much as you know we've got 
you know, product that's, uh, you know, I think that customers, uh, you know, whether it's at the, uh, the individual consumer level or the uh, OEM level, that's compelling. Uh, but I think the other factor is, you know, comes down to, you know, how we manage those customers. Until recently, I think, you know, we were, we were fairly unique in that in, in the, uh, in the uh, pre pandemic, at least in the uh, OEM world, we were able to pretty consistently uh, deliver, you know, uh, even large production orders within a, you know, two to, um, you know, uh, two, two month to two and a half month lead time, which was um, at least in the OEM world, was fairly un, unheard of. Now, of course, the pandemic thing has has really uh, cha- uh, you know, put us in a more challenging situation, and deliveries have, have have certainly gone out since then. But I would say that the two things that it really comes down to is is uh, product performance, and you know, we're I you know, I think that we're we're competitive enough in terms of pricing. But uh, um, the other factor I would say that really I think. Uh, um, makes us competitive is our uh, is our customer service and delivery, um, and then our after sales support. You know, we have a, a significant number of uh, ser- service personnel and customer service resources, sales resources, and we do pride ourselves that that uh, at any given point, you know, customers as opposed to having to go through a huge network of of uh, voicemail or or uh, or you know, web website portals to try to actually get a uh, um, to reach somebody at the company, customers can essentially call us up anytime during working hours, and we're going to have somebody available. Um, if not immediately, then you know, same day to call them back and 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 respond to their questions in person. Nice, yeah, that's that's huge, man. I think that's becoming more and more special these days, which is sort of sad, but awesome on you guys. So cool, man. Well, Jacob, I appreciate the time, and yeah, anything else that I didn't ask that you guys you want to talk about? You think people should know about Industry Nine? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a it's a so many different factors that that uh, go along with the company. It's kind of hard for me to uh, to reach into space and and grab onto any particular uh, things. But uh, um, yeah, I think we covered a pretty broad range of topics, and uh, um, you know, I'm sure there'll be other opportunities in the future to uh, discuss other avenues and in uh, more depth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know you put a lot of time and energy into the rims, and that is another huge topic. So maybe we'll do a part two down the road. Yeah, that is actually an area I thought about as well. Is that you know, rims was a uh, you know when we first launched the company, we didn't make our own rims, and uh, um, that was a big project that that we put a lot of energy into, and I was involved with extensively myself. That really kind of was a divergent point for our company, and uh, when we launched the torch product project at. Uh, in 2013 has kind of moved forward from them, but that's probably a good conversation for another time. Yeah, man. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much for your time. So anyone else wanting a set of i9 wheels now? If you'd like a visual of how their pause and engagement work, check the links in the show notes. Just head to bikerumor.com slash podcast for a link to this and every other episode's notes, plus images and more. Huge thanks to Jacob for making the time. You can check them out at industry9.com, and that's all spelled out, or on Instagram at industry underscore nine. If you like this and want more great interviews with the people behind the brands, bikes, components, and technology that we all ride, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a rating or review. That really helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time, keep the rubber side down.